where we are going to be primarily in Romans 5 there, what Marcella just read for us, so I would trust you'll find your way there this morning. We're going to be surveying a little bit of Romans across the board, the first three chapters here, briefly before we get there, but we'll get there here in just a few moments. So I just want to make sure you know where to find yourself and where to locate us in our study this morning. This Advent season, we're taking the time to explore um, the rich theological landscape of all those treasured songs that resonate out for us during the Christmas season, during the Advent season. And the goal is to bring forth for us and help us behold all the wonderful themes that come to coalesce together in the kingship and the kingly office of Christ. That there's one song that all these songs really point to, and that is to declare the goodness and greatness of our incarnated King Jesus, and one of the key themes that we keep unpacking here in his kingly office is that he presents Jesus comes first in that first advent as our humble servant king, and yet he is yet to come again as that conquering uh, warrior king. And we see these things overlap so much throughout the scriptures, do we not? Even though we know that the substantial nature of that is still yet to come, we still recognize he's still warrior king today. He fights and defends for his people even this moment through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so if you've been following along in J.C. Ryle's little uh, Advent reader, if you were able to pick up one of those a couple weeks ago, you know that this has been primarily where he's had us focus. And that was a happy accident. I just saw the guide and I was like, this will be a great guide for us to walk through. And it's just been so great how that's kind of really worked out well with our sermon series so far. This morning's primary focus song is O Holy Night, as you've already, already sung. And in it, we see an important theme arise in, uh, from that song of deliverance. Consider some of the things we sung this morning. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. Um, uh, uh, let me keep on going here. Um, it um, is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and ever pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. There's that burden, there's that, that deep uh, struggle that we all have, knowing that we, are, uh, we, we live under the weight of sin and we want to break free, but far yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees is the, is the call to action to the greatness of this king who comes and he delivers us from sin that we have been living under the weight of since the garden. Consider verse 2, led... By the Spirit, by faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts, are his, by his cradle we stand. Um, jump on down, the King of kings, thus lay in a lowly manger, in our own trials bore to be our friend. He knows our need, to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your King, before him lowly bend. And then finally, the result of that is then great hope, even in this moment uh, of our days, even when this was written back in the late uh, 1700s, late um, 18th century, and became really popular in the 19th and the 19th century, 1800s. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. So there's a result of this deliverance that we want to see the fruit of it, where chains are broken. And ultimately, the chains of sin are broken from us. But then the reality is of God's people being a beacon of light to the, sin, the, the, the chains of sin that have been broken in the world, very world we, we live in. Now, you might be interested and wonder where this song come from and why it became so popular. I know I enjoy singing this song every season. Um, it's the very rich, and even just the melody is a very powerful melody to be kind of caught up in itself. But um, as we're looking at this theme of deliverance, here in this particular hymn, which originated in France, in the French church in the late, 1800, late, I'm sorry, the, um, late 1700s, early 1800s, it didn't really get popular until mid, maybe early 1800s and actually in out of the abolition movement 
of England. It became uh, a very theme where a lot of churches were singing this because of their longing to see the slave trade um, ended. Why? As a reflection of what? Of the emancipation we have in Christ. That there's something that we long for, that men and women would be treated with dignity and, and, and equality as we see God create us in his image. And so this theme of deliverance is so critical to our celebration of Advent because it touches on both dimensions of the office of kingly office of Christ, does it not? It touches on the fact that he comes to serve us and rescuing us from sin. But he also comes as that warrior king who will then destroy the, the pangs and the penalty and the bondage of sin wherever the gospel goes. And ultimately in the, in the, in the time when he returns, he will put it to its final resting place. And so this morning, the, the theme that I have that I want to just tease out from Romans 5 and part of Romans 6 is this. Christ the King, he has delivered his people from the penalty and bondage of sin. Christ the King has delivered his people from the penalty, one, and the bondage two of sin and so let's consider that for a few moments by just asking a few questions it's gonna be the first question that i want us to think about before we even can get into romans 5 is what are we delivered from when we talk about this idea of deliverance in the scriptures and we and we consider how much we talk about the idea of being delivered in the world we live in what exactly does the bible tell us about deliverance what are we delivered from and as we discussed in the Old Holy Night, this idea of deliverance is not unique to Christianity. It's not unique to really um, any, it's, 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 the whole world resonates with this idea of deliverance, right? Every religion, every culture, every society has something that we believe we need to be delivered from, don't we? That depends on where you come from and where you are. And we know the typical ones, right? Um, consider what I found just kind of surveying the Google verse out there. You might not be happy with what I'm about to share with you. But some of the more classical concerns, right? Poverty, we want to see, and, and, and there's something good and right about that. Racial and ethnic dignity and equality, we, we recognize there's something scriptural about that. Um, these are overflows of, our, of knowing Christ and the power of the gospel. Oppression and tyranny from government magistrates who mistreat their people. That's been a, a, a stain on human history. But also consider how much the conversation about deliverance has changed in our culture just over the last 10 to 15 years and how much we differently we our culture conceives of deliverance and how much that remaining sin continues to corrupt what we understand is what we really need and what we need to be delivered from um, we need deliverance in general according to the culture from social inequity you know what i mean um, we need deliverance from this oppressive world where we've been dominated by uh, white male colonialism. This is, this is the theme, by the way, in academia. If you're not paying attention, you should pay more close attention to what's happening out there. And so the result of that is we need to be freed from colonial views of science, which sees binary between male and female, because that was apparently invented by a bunch of white guys. Um, Colonial oppression and math, because two plus two is oppressive. You know that, right? Have you seen that lately? Oppressing views of sexuality and sexual norms, again, because a bunch of white guys figured that out. And um, 
views of gender distinctions in favor of fluid, uh, egalitarian views of human sexuality. Again, we need to be freed from all those things. That's the world's idea of deliverance, is it not? We see it everywhere. Pay attention. You've seen a lot in this debate with Palestine and Israel and all these, uh, these uh, presidents of all these major universities and how they're defending these kinds of things. It's all because the root under that is, that's all result. Israel's, all that's a result of what? White colonial ideals. Now, I'm not here to get into all those details, but just understand how much the world's so far off of what it means to be delivered and what delivery, deliverance we really need. See, in the end, in, in, sadly, our world defines deliverance as anything that would restrain me or make me accountable to anything beyond me. That's what we believe deliverance is. Any other autonomous, anything other than my own autonomous self-rule over anything of my own spheres of life, that is oppressive. So it won't end if we were to scrub white colonialism off the face of the earth. It won't end because we keep on pressing it further, do we not? Until ultimately, the culture we live in completely falls into pure destruction. Of course, this is not what the Bible outlines. It's our great need, is it? Paul describes our great need very clearly in the first three chapters of Romans. And I just want to take a few moments and just survey some of those things. It starts in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what is it that um, is the thing we need to be delivered from? God's wrath. According to the Bible, according to Paul, the apostle, God's just wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness against men. It's that which we need to be, needs to be assuaged. It is that which needs to be, we need to be delivered from. Delivered from his wrath because of sin in our lives that has been embedded in our hearts that causes us to be in rebellion against God. Why is humanity under the wrath of God? Well, just if you were, again, I'm not going to hit every verse here, but if you just follow along, for what can be known about God, verse 19, is plain, uh, about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and everything that have been made, and so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I'll just stop right there. So what is humanity under wrath of God for? One, willful blindness to the truth. Willful blindness to the truth, the suppression of the truth that can be clearly known by God, particularly through creation, and truth is plain, and God has shown it to us. I mean, the plain things are the main things, brothers and sisters. We may not necessarily, we, we can even just step aside a, a moment from special revelation and just recognize that even in natural revelation, the natural world shows us so many of those wonderful core foundational truths on which life is built and how life is most flourished. We see this everywhere. Yet we live in a world, and this is not just a new class 10, 20 year thing. This has been the pattern of the world to deny these kinds of things. We're just getting much more creative in it now. And what's the heart of the matter then? What is the result of this blindness to the truth? Well, we're foolish in our hearts, is what, the, what Paul says. We, we pant over after ungodly and disordered things. It also, he also says mankind is futile and darken our wisdom. 
In other words, we have none. In all of our attempts to say we have wisdom, we have none. Why? Because we've exchanged the glory of God, evident in creation, and we have made creation, namely ourselves, God. It's everywhere we look. Pay attention. It's there. Continuing on through this survey of chapter 1 and verse 24, God's wrath then entails giving mankind over to that debased rebellion. This is what God's response is. It's a fearful response. It's a very chilling response to know what the wrath of God actually entails. In verses 24 of chapter 1 through 32, he tells us three times he gives up creation. He gives up mankind to, um, to their debased thinking. Number one, he gives them over to the lust of their flesh in verse 24. Like we, he gives us over to lust after these things, to be consumed by these things. This is the wrath of God, and it's not just a permissive parent, by the way. He says, ah, just want to be happy. That's not what's happening here. He gives them over to the dishonorable passions, he says later on there, that we twist the good things into disordered things, the goodness of God exalting, for instance, in our modern day, this, exalt, this God exalting sexuality for, its, for purposes of shameful sexuality. We've exchanged the goodness of God-exalting God sexuality for shameless, self-serving sexuality. You don't just have to pick on same-sex marriage. Of course, we can. We can pick on all those kind of things. We can pick up. This is just the way our world does. Sex is for me, and it is to satisfy me. That's the way the world sees it. And then third, he says, he gives them over to a debased mind. And, of course, this is not the apex of it all. Utterly filled with unrighteousness. Look at just what it says there. Look at the way he describes the debasements. For since they did not see, verse uh, 28, it fit to acknowledge God. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're haughty. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil. They're disobedient to parents. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice. Sadly, this is not just true of people outside the church, is it? Sometimes even in the church today, we are giving, doing the exact same thing that last verse says, giving approval to these things. And you might be caught just for a second. Maybe you're wrestling, you're struggling with this idea, and you go, well, is that really me? And if we want to stand before the truth of Scripture, the answer can only be yes. Without the power of of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the work wrought by for us through the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Christ, yes, this is all of us. Someone said earlier, we were talking about the, uh, in, in, in Sunday school, you know, what are some of the, um, what are some of the uh, uh, ways people try to debunk the scriptures? And they said, well, it's not inclusive enough. I would argue it's absolutely 100% inclusive. This includes everybody. You can't get more inclusive than that. So then, the result then, if you keep on tracking through chapter 2, mankind has no excuse before God, right? 
This is what we see there in verses 1 through 24. I don't have time to unpack it. I'm just going to give you the overview of it all. We see there in the first couple of verses that there is no excuse, O man. Everyone has, who, I'm sorry, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves. In other words, he's saying, look, you can point the finger and you can try to make yourself look better, but you're looking at the wrong standard, my friend. This is what we do, right? We just kind of pass the buck and we kind of, oh, well, look, do you see him? I mean, he's got to be worse than me. And uh, what God says very clearly, what Paul says through, I mean, God says through Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are not able to balance ourselves by comparing ourselves to others' more dastardly deeds. That's not going to happen. No, actually, the, what's going to happen is your presumptuousness, verse 4, you, do you presume on the riches and the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Like this is going to be exposed in mankind everywhere in all places and all times. That we, we presume upon God's grace. You hear it, right? Oh, we're just all sinners. Almost like, right? That's true. I appreciate you willing to admit that. But that doesn't mean we have a grandfatherly God in heaven who just says, right? No, we cannot presume upon the grace of God. It's our presumptuous about God's grace and love that will be exposed and God will return to sender. He'll look at you and say, you have presumed and I reject your presumption about my grace. This is what happens to mankind. No, actually what's going to happen, and we see this in verses 12 through 24 again, is that the weight of all of our works will be put on the scales of God's just law. And you know what happens when our works get on the scales of God's just law? It never balances. It never balances. No matter how much we try to throw on our end, it never balances. It never does. But here's the wonderful thing, and here's the point. We get to verse, I mean, chapter 3, and we begin to see a shift as Paul is continuing to show forth that, that the depth of our unrighteousness before God. And we get to verse 21 of chapter 3, and we see that there is still hope because there is one who does meet this righteous standard, one who does balance it. His name is Jesus. Look with me as it says in verse 20, for but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, everyone else cannot equal the balances, and they're, but they're justified by his grace as a gift through the, redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the righteous standard of God's law is met by the incarnate son, the king that we are worshiping, the king that we are seeking to re, re, um, reconnect with during Advent, if you will. See, all of us fall short of that and, and, and what needs, to, needs in our lives to balance the scales between our unrighteousness and God's righteous standard. But Jesus is the just one. He balances it for us. But not only does he balance it for us, he offers his life as a propitiation. It's a big word, right? As a substitute 
for all those who would have faith in him. And so therefore it says in this text, Jesus is the just and justifier of the one who has faith, of the one who has faith in him. This is why justification, in case we want to go down that rabbit trail this morning, is such a cardinal doctrine in the church. It's why it needs to be recovered in the Reformation. And we must be careful not to tinker with it. People often want to tinker with it. They often want to add Jesus plus to things. They often want to add certain things to it. And it's, it stands on its own because the only thing that merits, I'm reading um, uh, The Gospel Life by John Owen right now, and he talks about the same thing about this justification by faith, that it's, it stands on its own. Certainly it has fruits, which we will see this morning. But the fruit of it is not the foundation of it. No, we are, the foundation of our faith is justification. What Christ has done and what Christ has done alone. To move away from that is to remove us far from the Bible's revelation of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So now we have this survey here of why then um, uh, we need deliverance. Paul's emphatic, it, it, it cannot be denied. What then is the next question, our, what does our deliverance entail? What is exactly happens as a result of our deliverance? And that's why we're going to spend the rest of our time here in Romans 5. We're now ready to explore the dimensions of this deliverance. And I said earlier in my main point, and this is exactly what we're going to frame out for the rest of our time, is that we have deliverance from the penalty of sin, number one, and the bondage of sin, number two. And these are very important distinctions to make when it comes to thinking about our deliverance. They're very important distinctions to make when we start thinking about the kingship of Christ. Understanding these two dimensions is vitally important for our ongoing hope and confidence, but also our ongoing sanctification. Because if we get these things either mixed, or we don't understand the dimensions of these two realities, we, we, we end up still not living with the kind of hope and the kind of transformation that we have been promised to us in Christ. And so I think Romans 5 and 6 outline very well for us the um, though we'll have to limit it to some select verses this morning, it outlines this wonderful picture of deliverance. That we're delivered from the penalty of sin, but we're also delivered from the bondage of it. So, let's consider that first point. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. Look at verse 1 there in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's going back to chapter 3, that justification we just talked about. The idea is it's looking back to that, verses 21 through 26 there in chapter 3. And it's telling us, it's showing us that because of justification by faith, that essential to getting real peace, without resting in the justification accomplished by Christ, we can have no ongoing peace. But because we do have justification in Christ, those who live by faith in Christ, we can actually have real peace. Peace. If our notion of justification has this, as I've said a minute ago, this kind of mixed view where it partially depends on the works of Christ and it partially depends on our behavior and obedience, then what we, ha what we, then what we have is this very thing that's very far from what we have confessed as the church throughout church history. And unfortunately, many Christians, again, tinker with this and popular leaders espouse certain forms of this and we've got to be careful with the things that they say. We, friends, are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Again, cardinal stuff here. Cardinal stuff here. Why? Because of what he says in the second half. 
The second half cannot be true if the first half is not the foundation. If the foundation is not justification by faith, we have no peace with God throughout Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have faith only in Christ so that we can have that second part of the, of the verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace here, again, goes back to what? Chapter 1 and chapter 2. All that stuff we just walked through. That we're deserving of God's wrath and that we have no peace with God. And that we've been living in willful blindness in our natural selves. And then we're haughty with self-wisdom. And then we're presumptuous about God's grace. And then our belief is that we stand before God on our own merit. All of that has failed. And it will not provide us a substantial or sufficient standing before God. But here Paul says, but for the church, for those who have believed in Christ, now in Christ, we are at perfect peace with God. And nothing else need to be done. Friend, can you live like that? Knowing tonight when you go to bed, there is nothing else that needs to be done to have peace with God. If you are justified by faith alone, you can sleep well tonight. We're at perfect peace with Him. Nothing else will be done to satisfy the demands of God's law. And nothing demands of our law-breaking and our rebellion and our depraved disposition. Friends, this is the greatest thing our souls long for. To be at peace with God and not to be under and be an object of his wrath. This is where you and I can, you can tell a professing believer or professing Christian if they have the understanding of their gospel right. Do they see the greatest issues in their life as enmity with God? Or do they see their issues in life like our modern culture does? And sometimes we let it seep into the church of that, that, that my biggest problems are my psychological needs. Or my biggest problems are my sexual needs. Or my sexual peace. Or my biggest problems are my emotional peace. My biggest problems are anything that prevents me from my self-contrived view of the enemies to my dreams peace. When we have this peace, this peace in Christ, we can truly begin to scale that wonderful mountain in the happiest scent free and more and more free from sin that has kept us in bondage. Yes, we are free. We are delivered from the penalty of sin. But also, it, we're delivered from the bondage of it too. I don't want us to forget this because that's pretty much what the next four verses say to us. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin. Verse 2 through him we have obtained access by faith into, his gra into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. These are active verbs. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, give, has been given to us. By faith... Look at just what the verse unpacks. These, chapters, these verses unpack. We have grace to stand. I don't know if that signals anything to you, but that means we have freedom from the bondage of sin. And we have hope in the glory of God. And, and in some sense, that first verse, that verse 2, stands as kind of the capstone of everything that comes all the way through verse 5. 
Grace to stand means we, are, we may walk with, the limp, with a limp because of remaining sin, but we, need not, but we need to remind ourselves of John Wesley's great, well-worn words, though sin remain, it shall not reign. So we still live in a world that's plunged under the remaining effects of sin, but it does not reign any longer because of Christ. So if we are freed from the penalty, we're also freed from the bondage of it, and therefore it cannot, and we'll see later on at the end of chapter 6, or later in chapter 6, we, cannot, we don't live under its reign any longer. Therefore, again, just kind of continuing on the path of the verse, by faith we can rejoice in our sufferings. You cannot rejoice in your sufferings if you're not justified by faith. You cannot rejoice in your sufferings if ultimately your peace of God is defined by something other than what the Bible says is defined. By faith we can endure. Oh, really? In the middle of the sufferings, I can endure this? By faith we can see character grow. How many times do we hear people say, how many times have I said, that's just who I am? You've done that? Come on, admit it. You've done it, right? That's just who I am. No, character can grow because bondage of sin has been killed. By faith, we can grow deeper in our hope. And by faith, we, can, we will not be put to shame for our faith. See, the end of the matter, and this is what we're getting into the, the chapter 6, verse 12 through 14, is our deliverance from the penalty and our deliverance from the bondage of sin demands that we pursue a joyful delight in the truth of God's word, in the truth of God himself, as well as denying all of the schemes of the world that continue to implode our lives constantly. And that's where we get into verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer, you are not under law, but under grace. Let not sin reign you know maybe you're like me sometimes i like to find ways to get away from the strangeness of the bible sometimes it feels strange the weirdness of trying to follow god in this world and you feel like you have to apologize for the bible and i mean i don't know if you ever feel that way there are times when i just feel that way in my most sinful places but i realize when i'm reading it for all it's worth and seeing it for the goodness that it is to me in Christ and what God has given it to us for his church, I can't do that. I cannot get away from it. It's okay to embrace the strangeness of the Bible. It's okay to understand that the Bible's supernatural claims put us at odds with the modern world that we live in. It's okay that one of these claims at which modern people balk at is the claim that somehow every human, single human needs deliverance from sin. And that every single human is, needs deliverance from the death that is to come and needs deliverance from the devil's shackles. It's okay to be weird and say, put away sin, brothers and sisters. It's okay. Galatians 1, 3 through 5, Paul opens his letter to the Galatians with a gospel greeting. 
He says, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Isn't that interesting? In Paul's letters, he often makes a distinction between the present evil age and contrast it with the age to come. If you pay attention to Paul, how he uses this in his different letters. So when the Bible speaks of this age as evil, as he does there in Galatians 1, it isn't because this world is essentially evil, but because this age is under the present remaining power of sin and death. And why is that important? Because there's no true Christianity where the revelation received in the Bible is not held with confidence and obedience over our own fleshly opinions. So we want to think we can tell God what's better for us, don't we? We want to say, God, well, you don't understand this struggle. You don't understand the things that I wrestle with. You don't understand this. You don't understand. And if anyone understands you, it's him. Again, the Bible is utterly inclusive. Utterly inclusive. See, we want to take our own fleshly opinions and we wish and, and, and the things we wish for as, uh, as extra things to add to the Bibles and what the Bible has conveyed. To many Christians, we, we want to pull our punches about sin, don't we? We have, and I, if I'm being honest with you, I've been chief of sinners in this at many times in my life. No, friends. We, net, we let not sin reign. And Christians have got to call sin, sin. That, that's not a license to go be you know, a jerk about it, but it does mean we are honest about what reality is. But continue on through these couple of verses. If we're not letting sin reign, we cannot certainly get, present our members, our bodies, ourselves to be instruments of sin. Again, too many Christians, and we see this all over the place. I, I hate to say this, and it breaks my heart when I read things that faithful church attenders, Christians, church leaders, they present themselves as instruments of sin for sin's reign in the world. But sin doesn't reign anymore. Christ says, He's, he's, he's destroyed the reign of sin. It remains, yes, but it does not reign. And not for Christians, particularly. And we give too, in too easily the temptation of sin. And we live too easily in the fear of man in our moment today. No, rather, Paul says, you do present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. You see how he's trying to build the picture out here. Rather than being instruments of sin, we should seek to be instruments of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean we're self-righteous? Make sure we make a distinction there. You're not, you're not projecting your righteousness to the world. You're reflecting the righteousness of Christ to the world. In other words, you can be no more righteous than the preaching and the telling of the gospel to others. That's the way you're most righteous when you declare and spread the good news of the gospel to all. But it also means forsaking the worldly cares and comforts that oftentimes our lives get co-opted in and prevent us from advancing the gospel that prevent us from using our time for, the, for Christ-honoring aims and using our talents for Christ-honoring aims and using our money and our, and our treasure for Christ-honoring aims. See, I think all of us can look at those paradigms and go, man, Lord, what are you doing? How do you, how do you want me to give my life? How do you want me to be an instrument for righteousness? Lord, help us be instruments of righteousness. Amen? Why? Because Paul gives us this promise. Sin will have no dominion over you. Look at what he says. Since you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Friends, this is our glorious hope as the church. 
Sin no longer has dominion over us. It may tease us. It may tempt us. It may scare us. But it may not rule us. It may not have dominion over us. Jesus has gloriously ensured that those who live by faith in his grace are assured that, that, future, that our future is sure and that our hopes will not be dashed when Jesus returns. Friends, that is the pinnacle of our hope. That I'm no longer standing on the scales of God's just law trying somehow or another to keep on throwing my little pebbles on there to see if I can just get a little bit more in there to kind of balance it out. No, I don't live there anymore. No, I live under the grace of God through the merited, meritorious work of Christ Jesus on my behalf, and my hopes will never be dashed because what He has done is faithful. What He has accomplished is faithful. Friends, as we celebrate the Advent this year, I do not want you to leave this place and leave our times thinking that somehow or another we, we, we serve a weak deity. He has delivered you from the penalty of sin. The greatest deliverance you will ever conceive of. And he has delivered you from the bondage of sin. So that you might live freely as instruments of righteousness and not in the dominion of sin and death. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for Paul's directness. Thank you for his love and his grace in these words. Thank you for your spirit giving it to him. Thank you for us being able to have this, this so many ages beyond this and able to, to now remind ourselves of the, the hope we have in Christ. So, Father, as we come to the table this morning, we come with eager expectation. We come with hope. Why? Because now sin has no dominion over us. And I can enjoy this table. And I will one day enjoy that table of the Lord forever and ever again. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.